Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Talking About Podcast. I am Sean Kennedy. Uh, Sixers with the win over Detroit last night to move to three and two on the regular season. Um, I'm not going to revel in beating the Pistons too much. So let's uh, we're going to do something a little different this week rather than looking back at how they've been playing in past games. We're going to do a little looking ahead to a uh, game that a lot of fans in the Philadelphia area might have had circled. Uh, and when the schedule came out, the Atlanta Hawks are set to take on Philadelphia Saturday night. Um, obviously, that was the series that ended the 2020-21 season for Philadelphia in a heartbreaking fashion. So we're going to do a lot of Atlanta talk on this week's episode. And I'm uh, happy to have back on the podcast, Glenn Willis. He is a contributor for Peachtree Hoops, um, our SB Nation sister site that doing all their Atlanta Hawks coverage. So Glenn, I appreciate you coming back on the pod. Always great to talk uh, with you, Sean. Uh, thanks for having me back and look forward to the conversation. All right, great. So before we uh, go into the current season and how Atlanta has been playing and uh, look at, look ahead to this uh, upcoming matchup between the two teams, wanted to take a quick walk down memory lane with you back to the last postseason. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because this is kind of a, tr- a trigger warning for Sixers fans that might be listening. But uh, yeah, obviously an, an upset with Atlanta uh, feeding the Sixers last postseason. Um, in your mind, what, what were the the one or two factors that you know most enabled the, the Hawks to pull off that upset back in the second round? Yeah, so for me, I think it was more about what we came to understand about the Sixers deficiencies than um or i should say as much about sort of the hawks um hitting their stride at just the right time the hawks peaking at a ideal time for them and the sixers just not really having enough offensive creation um obviously mb is one of the best players in the league um we could talk about that on both ends of the court he's one of the best offensive players in the league one of the best defensive players in the league but he just didn't have enough help and that set the hawks up with their defensive personnel what they had at the time to be able to do just enough defensively uh, to create constraint for the Sixers. And, um, and we'll all remember that, you know, several games where the Sixers got out to a robust lead and the Hawks just kind of chipped away at it and, and, and worked their way back into the game. And those, those cases um, for the ones that they won um, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, and one of the things that I've talked about when I look back is, you know, Capella taking on the challenge of defending Embiid uh, with a certain kind of approach, and that was um, to do what you can with him to make him have to work for his points uh, and to know that there are going to be some moments where the optics are that he's dominating you. And, and there, there were stretches where that was the case. But to trust that if you stick with the game plan, that without uh, 
enough help that he's going to um they're going to trust that he's going to wear down and be a little easier to defend in the fourth quarter and not have quite so much to throw at you uh and so there i thought their mental approach the hawks mental approach was strong uh i thought that they were um really able to kind of bounce back and work through even times when it looked like the six words were like five times better for them better than the first stretches of the game um and then you know um on, on the offensive end trey got you know good help enough help in enough games for guys like herder um collins contributing here and there there's just got timely offensive help for trey that and b just never got and you know and i know it's it, it must be tough for sixers fans to look back but for me when i do things like that I think about how that's instructive for how I look at the current season and the current roster construction for the Sixers, and that they still kind of have the same issues, you know, it seems uh, to me. So that to me, it was about the not having enough help, the Hawks peaking at the right time, Trey getting more help offensively than Embiid, and Capella sticking with his assignment um, and trusting that in the fourth quarter, it would go better and look better for him than it did for longer stretches in other games. Well, yes, you are... Coming coming at it from afar, but you've made the astute observation that Embiid does not have enough help. Um, we've already seen it this year with the, right. the, the Brooklyn loss, and just when it comes down the stretch, they don't have that closer they can go to. And you're right that Capella made Joel work, and he still had an excellent series, and he was, you know, probably 12th on the roster as to reasons why the Sixers lost because he was still excellent and he was playing through a torn meniscus, which is very commendable, obviously. But yeah, he, he got worn down just because he was having to carry such a heavy load and Capella was making him work, as you mentioned. And yeah, by those, by the fourth quarters, he was just, he looked kind of gassed and he didn't have a lot left in the tank and they just didn't have someone else that they could turn to say like, okay, Joel, you know, needs somebody else to give him a hand here. Who's ready to step up. And there just wasn't anybody. Um, so yeah, that, and I, I thought hurt, you mentioned Herter and I thought Bogdanovich and just the size on the wings that they had and, and the scoring help they offered Trey, um, that really hurt the Sixers, particularly after Danny Green went down and wasn't available because he's there, him and Matisse are their best two, uh, wing defenders and Matisse was having to take his turn on Trey. So he wasn't available for, for, for those secondary guys, but yeah, uh, you you, you kind of hit all, all all the same points that that I thought. Uh, I, I I guess it wasn't rocket science when you have Embiid and Seth Curry as the only two guys that even make a field goal for a half. Um, that <laughs> it's kind of obvious that you, they need a little more help. Um, yeah, and, and Seth was Seth was playing through injury, if I remember correctly, also, and I wonder if he might have been able to give them. I mean, as close as the series was, seven games and all that. If if he would have been in better physical shape, if he would have given the, given the Sixers just enough to get them across the finish line, we'll never know. But I, I want to kind of acknowledge that he wasn't 100% too, and he was the guy probably most likely to be able to give them the help that they would have needed. And, and, and he was uh, you know, valiantly kind of playing through a pretty, pretty tough physical um, situation himself. Yeah, he was. Um, I mean, everyone deals with those things. I mean, Atlanta didn't have – Cam Reddish or DeAndre Hunter in that series. So, so there's always, there's always guys missing and you can point to a dozen different things for how things could have gone differently, especially in a, a series that came down to the wire in game seven, like it did. But um, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you regarding Atlanta's postseason was, you know, they, they, they defeat New York. They, they upset the Sixers. So obviously in a vacuum, that's, that's an incredible 
postseason run, reaching the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, that's you, you couldn't. They they obviously uh, surpassed the expectations the fan base would have had going in. But then you look at it, and they were right there in the series with Milwaukee. Like it's not like Milwaukee ran roughshod over them, and the Bucks obviously went on to to win the title. Uh, was was there any sense of hey, this this was kind of a missed opportunity for for Atlanta, or was it just everything was house money? This was an incredible run. Let's just be happy. We still have a bright future ahead. Um, but just was there any sense of uh, man, like we really might have had that. Well, I mean, because of how the first, uh, you know, four-ish uh, games of that Milwaukee series went, I think just kind of on paper, you look at it and say, well, yeah, they had a shot, you know. Um, at least, even if you're just thinking about it mathematically, any team that kind of gets um, a series to game five and and it's a pretty competitive series, you're uh, kind of looking at that as a, a mathematical shot, you know. Uh, and especially once Trey went down with the injury, uh, you know, I don't know if any fans remember they won the first game he, he missed. Um, and then he tried to come back and, and play in uh, game six and just really wasn't even half of himself. Sixers fans aren't going to feel <laughs> any sympathy for the Hawks based upon what Embiid was dealing with. Um, but, you know, I I think realistically, me talking, this, this is not average Hawks fan talking, me talking, I don't think they had a huge shot because the Bucks just had so much playoff experience. Uh, they did so many of the little things that experienced playoff teams do, like understanding the difference in how the game is officiated, the deeper the playoffs get. Um, they were uh, just, you know, kind of buying into all the nuance that's required. Uh, and this was the Hawks' first, you know, go uh, into the playoffs. This was what Bud's third or fourth. I can't remember if it was his third or fourth time. Uh, and with that team, and they've been to the conference finals, and they've had. And I have my personal philosophy is that teams learn a lot through playoff failure, and if they're constructive, they use those as feedback loops to kind of learn and grow and, and develop towards being a better playoff team dealing with that environment. So I just think, regardless of whether Trey got hurt or not, uh, regardless of how things look mathematically about halfway through the series, the Bucks' experience, the Bucks' veteranship would have um, taken them uh, to a series win and the Hawks would have just not had enough kind of uh, experience and, um, uh, you know, ability to work in the playoff environment to, to, to find success. So I, I personally think they didn't have a huge shot to win that series, but I think it was incredible uh, what they accomplished even in that series by taking it to game six and keeping it, um, you know, mathematically competitive for as long as they did. Yeah, I, I feel like we've been talking about Bud needing to play as stars more in the playoffs for at least a decade. So right. <laughs> they, they've certainly got their their playoff experience over the years. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I, I feel like Milwaukee was the, the deeper, more battle tested team um, and it was their year. Uh, I, I was just curious for, as a as an outsider looking in whether there was any any tinges of regret from from Hawks fans because you, you reach the final four and you know it's kind of anything goes to a certain extent at that point so yeah I, th- I think half <laughs> like half the fan base thinks the trade doesn't get hurt they win that series the other half feels like anything they accomplished last year past you know get past getting getting past the second round was kind of icing on the cake and was just uh, kind of a free shot at trying to get something done and that's 
uh, roughly where the fan base is. I, you know, with my, my coaching background, I tend to kind of look back a little bit more um, from, from that lens and to think, yeah, I mean, I've taken teams into, you know, tournaments before where my team was like the fifth best team and you get matched up against the best team and you're like, uh, you look back and like, wow, even though we made it competitive, the other team was just a lot better than us. And I, I think that considering, like I said, all the playoff experience and things like that, that was just the case. The Bucks are just a better team by a, quite a bit in the areas that matters uh, in a deep postseason run. All right. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, looking ahead um, to the off season, then Atlanta, they, they, they kind of went uh, hashtag team, run it back. They, they, they extended uh, all, a lot of their their key guys like Trey and Capella and Herter, and then they re-signed John Collins and Lou Williams. So other than like bringing DeLon Wright in in a trade and and signing Gordy Dang to be their backup big, you know, kind of kind of the same cast of characters, which is perfectly understandable. They're a young roster that you know made a leap forward last year, so you want to continue to see them grow and develop. Um, was there? There, so, so two questions regarding the offseason. Was there any push within the fan base or to kind of like, hey, let's cash in some of our assets and is, is there a star available that we could package together and, and kind of try to accelerate things? And then also, and, and kind of maybe corresponding with that, is John Collins, it seemed like from the outside that this was like a real thing, him possibly not returning to Atlanta how much validity was that? Or was that just more posturing between the two sides to, to come to whatever agreed upon number they eventually landed on um, eventually? Because to, to anyone else, it's like, hey, this is a young guy who as a stretch big, he can space the floor well. He's very athletic. He does a lot of the things you want a, a modern big to be able to do. Like it, it kind of seemed like a no-brainer for them to bring him back, but then it kind of drug on and he still wasn't signed. And it, it just raised a lot of eyebrows to uh, people outside the the Hawks circles. So um, yeah, just what what was the deal with the Collins situation? And then also what what was the the kind of temperature for just bringing everyone back or kind of like leveling up and trying to get a star. Yeah. Maybe I'll take the Carlo ones first, if that's okay. Um, it, I mean, it seems looking back now that it wasn't very likely that he was going to land with another team. Um, it, you know, they were not able to reach an agreement on extension a year ago, uh, as we all know. Um, and, and you wonder kind of what the number was that was offered. I think, you know, you never know how fully accurate reporting is, but I think in mid nineties was the number that we heard and, um, and Collins did better than that. Um, at least on the total value, total contract value standpoint, um, once he got into his restricted free agency. Um, but the thing that, uh, suggests to me that they, um, were going to eventually bring him back despite how it looked was. Um, he still didn't have a, he never got an offer sheet from another team. Uh, all the cap space that was out uh, in the market basically dried up. There was no one really for him to go get an offer sheet from. It would have required a sign and trade, which requires the Hawks to play ball kind of, kind of in that, um, in that scenario. And, you know, when they had basically offered the five one twenty five, and then he had nowhere else to go, 
to get an offer sheet that was even competitive with that, they could have played hardball with him and said, no, we're going to reduce our offer now to five, 100 or whatever, or whatever, and squeezed him and save some money. And they didn't do that. Um, and so that suggests to me that they were always pretty serious about bringing him back uh, for those reasons. And that I think the mindset was, we don't see you as a max player. If you think you can go get a max offer sheet from some other team, good luck, go get it. And then if you do, then we'll deal with what, how we respond to you getting that kind of offer sheet. Well, that offer sheet never materialized. Like I said, all the cap space in the market dried up and they didn't squeeze him. They kind of still did right by him by giving him you know, a, a really good contract, I think, for uh, what he does and, and doesn't do. I, I don't want to sound like he doesn't deserve that. Uh, first of all, I'm always... Uh, in support of players getting whatever bag they can get um, with all the money kind of floating around that owners um, are able to uh, kind of secure for themselves. Always happy to see that. Um, but just like you said, I mean, how many guys at his position in the league are, you know, we don't have to do a, an exercise and try to get him like pegged exactly at a certain ranking, but one of the top 10 in the league uh, diving to the rim in the pick and roll, um, and I don't in the pick and pop um, or spotting up. He's basically a forty percent three point shooter um, in, in his career, and that flexibility allows him to play with Capella, who needs to dive to the rim. He can he can operate in the perimeter, and then if he's playing with like Gallo, who needs to be on the perimeter, then he can dive to the rim. And then also the defensive progress he had, you know, especially last year. Um, it's been all his whole career, but he really got it to a level that was material. Uh, last year, I mean, how do you not bring a guy his age back uh, into that core? He's a, you know, excellent in the pick and roll. Well, that's Trey's forte. You know, how do you not secure that partner uh, for Trey? So in, in that sense, just like you said, it, it, it seems like it only made sense to bring him back. So the only way I can make sense of what we saw was John wanted a max contract. The team was like, we're not giving you a max contract, but if you can get an offer sheet, good luck. That never happened. And they still gave him a nice contract. Yeah, the, I mean, I know there was the, maybe the friction between Trey and John Collins that got reported at one point. I don't, I don't know how, how much there was actually to that or whether that was just one of those things that get put in the, the rumor mill. So in my mind, that was maybe the only possible reason. Um, but yeah, you're right about the, the free, it wasn't a good off season to be a free agent and look for, look for a big contract because there weren't a lot of teams that had cap space. And yeah, as you said, that dried up really quickly yeah. and not on the same scale, but the Sixers experienced this um, to their benefit as well. When Danny Green was on the market for a week or so, and there just wasn't a team that could offer him the 10 million or whatever the Sixers were able to offer him. So he came back on a very team friendly deal. Um, so the, the fact that there just wasn't a lot of cap space or, or, or many suitors in the market that that worked to the Sixers benefit as well. And um, yeah, it kind of, from what you're describing that, that also worked to Atlanta's advantage in their negotiations. Um, all right. So that's, yeah, it seems like, uh, Collins was always kind of destined to return, which made perfect sense. Um, I, I it, glad you could clarify that for us. Um, as, as far as the running back situation, what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do still think that Travis Slank, um, would, uh, execute a consolidation trade for a true star, to pair with Trey, I think anyone who is um, really, um, you know, doing an honest assessment of what the Hawks are and are not right now, 
a uh, little little side note uh, the fan base mostly thinks oh we made the conference finals last year so we're a contender now and but i think if you have a a, a really honest kind of view of things they're still lacking one really top end star to pair a trade to really kind of get to that status um and so i think that he's i think slank is well positioned with all the young talent they have uh to kind of com- you know put a, a combination of guys together to pursue you know some star that might become a available via trade and as as we've seen the last five seven years or whatever you know getting getting a guy at that level is almost always going to happen via trade as opposed to free agency unless you're an la team these days you know and so that's how he has to think about it and so i still think that's there uh i don't know you know who the next one or two players at that level might be that might come free but i think slink would seriously explore an opportunity to to consolidate and make a move like that in terms of what Hawks fans expect, I think they would love that, and they talk about it um, a decent amount until you start asking who's in this trade, <laughs> right? Like, and that yeah. every fan base is like this. I don't want to say I'm picking on Hawks fans, but you know, you'll say, "Well, Cam Reddish has to be in that deal," and they say, "Oh, no way!" And it's yeah, like, we, <laughs> you know, so we, um, Sixers fans have had that with not not as so much anymore because you know, obviously how the Simmons thing has devolved. But back when Simmons was presumably more available and and more of a commodity they're like oh well you could package him and Tyrese Maxey in a deal and people are like oh well you can't trade Maxey Maxey's like the second coming like he's amazing as and he was a 20 year old rookie who had played like 12 games maybe um yeah so fans are fans are always irrationally ready to hold on to their guys even even if you looked at it objectively and said well this is more yeah. than fair value <laughs> right and they'll, and they'll say the same thing about hunter uh, and hunter's a, a unique young player and his two-way value we don't just you know go deep there and and then you, you'll mention a kongu and, and no 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 we can't you know uh, and it's like well how do you get this guy but but for me when i look at what when front offices look to me like they're obviously keeping that option available is those front offices who keep all their draft picks so the hawks own all their picks and that the ability to combine draft capital with a few young players, whatever that might look like, is typically what gets those deals done. And so, you know, you know, for example, there was a lot of rumors about the Hawks trying to move up in this last draft. Uh, they would have had to likely burn some future draft capital to do that, and Travis Slank didn't do it. And so the fact that he's really held back, um, once after the move up for Hunter a couple of years ago and the draft capital he spent then, since then he's you know, been careful to stay on top of and maintain all of his draft picks going forward. That to me suggests and that, that he, he's still really preparing to be able to at least look at and seriously make a run at an opportunity like that if it were to, to materialize. So I, I still think that possibility is something he's making sure they have uh, their position to, to approach. Yeah, and they're, they're certainly as well positioned as any team in the league to make that run. I mean, their combination of young young players that are ready to contribute right now and have been contributing to a winning team plus as you said they have all their picks um i, I don't know if, how many teams have that exact combination but they, they would have to be in the discussion for any star that does become available so yeah yeah the the ability to keep plugging forward with this young core that seems to fit really well together and is has been winning um and then you can still pivot and have this this great asset war chest to, to go after a star. That's a definitely a great position to be in. Um, 
Sure. All right, Glenn. So we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsors, and then we'll get back to talk about this season. All right. So we talked about last postseason. We talked about the off season. Let's talk about what's been going on this year. Um, obviously, still really early. Both the Sixers and Atlanta are coming into Saturday's game at three and two on the season. I feel like the fan base is probably are looking at that three and two in much different lights. I, I feel like Sixers fans are, are very much sky is falling. Joel Embiid is already publicly stated that he couldn't walk for two days. Um, not, not a great way to get off to the, the 2021, 22 campaign. Um, whereas uh, Atlanta at three and two, I, I, I mean, I'm, it's still early. Are, are people still as optimistic as they were coming into the season about everything that's going on? I think mostly, yeah, they've had a, a really soft schedule. Um, um, and for them, thankfully, because uh, they've needed that, because they, they honestly, the Hawks haven't been playing great. But I, I don't think the three and two start has changed uh, the expectations of Hawks fans at all. It's just, it's just, oh, you know, we're not making shots yet. And that's true. You know, the guys that they normally rely on to make perimeter shots aren't shooting well. Uh, I have other views, but it's been a fine start. They're kind of, on track for a, a solid start. And I think that's kind of, kind of the view. And I, I think that's somewhat accurate. <laughs> okay. So couple, couple things I wanted to hit on. One was there was the big uh, kind of rule change in the off season where the officiating was going to cut down on the, the unnatural basketball moves and guys that drew fouls in that way in the past, weren't going to be able to do so. Um, we've seen it most prominently with James Harden, who hasn't been getting to the foul line at nearly the same rate. Like he, he went five straight games with, I think it was no more than four free throws in a game when he had never gone that long a stretch without doing that in his career. So that that's kind of really changed his game. And he's, he's mentioned that he didn't have an off season to adapt to everything because he uh, had to rehab his injury. So maybe that's more of a factor than the rule change itself. But, um, so Trey was a poster boy for this. Um, Sixers sure. fans were were furious in in the second round series last postseason when Matisse Thybul would, from my admittedly somewhat biased perspective, he looked to be playing perfect defense, and then Trey would like duck into him, and Matisse did everything possible to avoid contact. Trey it clearly initiated contact, and Trey would get the call. Um, so I, I know Sixers fans were in the off season when these rule changes came out, like, Oh, finally, like I'm uh, a little too late, but we'll take it. Like Trey's not going to be able to do, do what, uh, pull his grift moves that he was pulling. Um, <laughs> have you noticed any, anything different in, in these first five games or, or in the preseason where there, there have been plays that you could point to and say, Oh, Trey definitely would have got that last season. He's not getting it this year. Has, has there been any obvious moments along those lines? I, I think just a few. Um, I think so. Um, all all the reporting suggests that Trey actually spent time with officials, or um, or people that kind of represent the um, officiating um, uh, in the league to make sure he understood exactly how these changes were. So I think he's mostly adapted to the changes that were intended to be implemented this year. Um, his free throws are down. Um, he, 
you know, but I think there's several things going on. And as I've watched, I think it is impacting Harden and Trey. I'm sure there are others, but they're the ones, just like you mentioned, that kind of really jump out at you. Uh, first of all, uh, I can't really think of many other players that were, um, you know, going to um, that offensive source nearly as often as Trey and Harden were. And so naturally that's going to be where the kind of the biggest change is. I agree. Trey even said after last night's loss, uh, um, that um, to the Wizards that, yeah, that stuff needed to change, uh, which was interesting. To, I never would have expected to hear him say that. Um, but what he was asked about was how the rest of his game is being officiated. So I think there's a lot more going on there. I, I think, you know, they needed to clean that up. I think a, a decent number of Hawks fans would say, yeah, that was a pretty ugly part of the game and needed to be kind of corrected or addressed and what have you. Um, but I think officials are having a hard time um, officiating the rest of Harden's game and the rest of Trey's games because Trey's getting bumped on drives. He's taking other contact that I think normally is called a foul. But I think officials are going to need some time to kind of pull back from all of the calls that they were given Harden, Trey, and a few others in the league. And now when they're officiating those guys specifically recalibrate their own way to adjust that. I think right now when they see contact, you know, I'm guessing the officials are, you know, hesitating for a moment saying, wait, did Trey create that contact or did the defender create that contract? And so Trey's now likely missing some legitimate calls. Um, is, should someone get kind of all wrapped around the axle about that? No. Uh, these are human beings that are trying to uh, adjust to this change. Change it's a change for players, a change for officials, a change for coaches, all across the board. It's just going to take some time. Has it has it impacted Trey? Absolutely, it has. Um, because as a smaller guy, and this is even uh, kind of a different and a little bit unique uh, way this is manifesting for Trey. Defenders are going to try to be really physical with him, and that's going to be sort of a, a, a really common go-to. Other teams put their bigger wings on him instead of you know putting the point guard on him and get really physical with him. And he's fine with that so long as when he's getting fouled, uh, at least by the way he was talking about it last night, he's fine with that so long as when he's actually getting fouled, the fouls are getting called. Uh, so I think there's it's going to take another, what, week or two weeks for everyone to acclimate, including the officials. I think fans getting really upset uh, about that um, are not – being um, kind of reasonable about the fact that officials are human beings too and need an acclimation period. So it's been a pretty big adjustment for him in a couple of ways. One is not getting as many points at the free throw line. And then secondly, um, you know, the, the best scorers in the league all use the free throw line to find their rhythm in their shooting rhythm. And his perimeter shot has not been as reliable for him uh, either. And I think that if he were going to the free throw line more often, that he would have more of that natural rhythm that scorers find when they get to the free throw line. And so, yeah, he's pushing through. He still had good games. He's still playing well, still running the offense, um, still kind of doing his thing. Um, but he's not quite able to deliver the the robust production uh, that he was, especially toward the end of last season with um, just not as many trips to the free throw line and how that kind of spills over to whether he can find a rhythm as a score or not at times. Sure. Yeah, it's. I, I think you're right in that officials are still trying to figure out the kind of gray area with everything. And we've seen league wide that free throw rate is that, is that a, the lowest rate it's been in years um, just for the league as a whole. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think they're, they're trying to figure out what the right balance is and you, you want to cut out the unnatural movements and, and the obvious 
things that are not not basketball moves but are just being done to create a foul because they're it's kind of exploiting the rules um i that the one i saw that kind of made the rounds on uh nba social media was the the patrick beverly um like stopping in in, like in the backcourt and and letting the guy like run into him and in the past that would have been a foul and the guy called the referee called an offensive foul and everyone's like yeah finally like that's there's no point for a guy to do that like you would never do that on a basketball court unless you were just foul foul hunting yeah Um, if you you did that pickup you'd be thrown out of the game and told that they're coming back right (laughs) yeah exactly so I think I think those things everyone's in agreement like hey we have to get rid of these um and it's better for the game but I I think the temporary side effect as you said is that there are probably some legitimate fouls where where guys are um driving and you know they're not initiating the contact unnaturally but they're 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 making a basketball move and contact comes as a result and they're, they're maybe not getting the benefit of the doubt that, that they might have in the past because refs are so cognizant of they're, they're overcorrecting a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I think that fans like who aren't say Harden or Trey fans or Nets or Hawks fans or you know, other teams that have players that do this, you know, are that have the view like, well, this is, this kind of is, is comes with the territory, right? You've created so much of this unnatural contact over the years that now officials are having to stop and say, wait, was that legitimate like foul contact or did the offensive player unnaturally create that? And that this is sort of a bit of their own doing uh, to come from that with this adjustment. So I think everybody just kind of relax, take a deep breath. Let's see where we are in two or three weeks from now. If everyone's had a chance to acclimate, I think that this will hopefully be uh, not a thing and we can just all enjoy watching basketball. Yep. That's, that's why we're here ultimately. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, the other, the other guys I wanted to, touch on were uh, Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter just because they were not available in, in that Sixers postseason series last year. Um, so Reddish has been, you know, one of the team's leading scorers in the early part of the season. And then Hunter, uh, like I, I just see his name constantly pop up on Twitter, like DeAndre Hunter, amazing defensive play. He, he seems to be really garnering like, hey, this is one of the elite wing defenders in the league. Like he's he's developing that reputation now. Um, like how how much of that is warranted? Uh, where, where where do you think his uh, his ceiling is as as a defender? And then with Reddish, um, it is he they they extended him, so they they feel he's a a part of the team's future. Um, do you how 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 do you feel he fits with the other long term pieces here, or, or do you think he's like ultimately? the guy who would have to be sent out for, for that star package. Like he would be one of those young pieces that would need to go. Yeah. Uh, well, so they uh, just um, to get the timing lined up. So they extended Herder. Right. will be up for extension next oh, at the end okay. of the season. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, he has been a leading scorer uh, for the Hawks, but he's had a, you know, a massive usage for what his a person in his role would typically have. And he's kind of it's kind of been a tell of two offensive players. One is on catch and shoot, he's been really good. Uh, I mean, even that sort of percentage is not consistent. I don't know what it is right this moment, but it was after four games, I think he was still, you know, in the 55, 56% range on uh, catch and shoot threes. Uh on the ball, when he's creating his own shot, he's still pretty wild. Uh, he still struggles to kind of run a normal pick and roll. 
Uh, and so the stats are, are a little bit misleading. Uh, Hawks fans are going to be mad at me for saying this, but I, I said this on Twitter uh, in the last couple of days when uh, some folks um, like you know Brad Roland and Locked On Hawks was like, Cam's got to pull back on offense. He's trying to do too much. Hawks fans just jump on him. Brad, you're a hater, you know. And the reality is, is that he's still not a very um, precise ball handler. His ball handling is kind of all over the place. At times, his decision-making is all over the place, whether he's he's attacking the paint, whether he sees a drop-off pass or not, it's just complete crapshoot. So that half the time he will, half the time he'll just have blinders on. So Reddish still has a long, long way to go. Um, he still has a ton of potential, and he hasn't played a ton of games in his career because of injury. Um, but um, but he's he still oozes with potential. But if he's ever going to become the pull-up shooter that Hawks fans, I think, maybe think he already is, it comes down to ball like If you can't control the ball when you're dribbling, you're never going to kind of get the ball into your shooting pocket, you know, coming up off the dribble. This is sort of my, my, my coaching part of me, but he has so far to go there. Um, but he's um, a really disruptive defender. He has a lot of length uh, to um, throw at guys he's defending, and he's excellent transition on offense. He's a good cutter when he thinks to cut on offense. He's done a good job in catch and shoot. And then I think, you know, Nate McMillan still is giving him a chance to run some stuff like pick and roll, um, getting him into some DHOs, letting him have some reps there, even as inconsistent as his decision-making and execution is there, just tells you that the coaching staff still must believe that's worth doing with him. So, I mean, I think, um, well, first of all, I don't know if Sixers fans know, but there's been a ton of noise about the Hawks having some serious interest in moving him to that sometimes it sounds like they want to get him out uh, out of here. Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember in the off season, he was one of those names that, uh, like, oh, hey, you could maybe get him for a first, like a protected first round pick or something. Like right. team teams that had like a I, the, the the Sixers had the Al Horford trade exception. Um, right. So like Reddish was a name that would pop up. Like, oh, you could fit him into the trade exception, and like he'd be a, a useful piece. So just the fact that he even comes up in those conversations, like if, if he was cemented in as like, Oh no, the Hawks are definitely going to eventually extend him. And he's part of their future for sure. Like right. there's no way you would you bring his name up even. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and there's, as you know, I'm sure um, there are so many different um, parties uh, at work and things like this. So for example, I'm sure that with him going into year three, his agents, want him starting his agents want him having uh, kind of a primary role on a team um, because that's what's going to set him up to be able to make an argument that he deserves a robust extension at the end of this year he's coming off the bench Um, he's not running the offense on the second unit Uh, and so sometimes it's just an agent kind of pushing to put noise or put rumors out there that might shake something loose or shake something free Um, is there's a tiny bit of a parallel in my view anyway to Ben's situation there in that, you know, Ben's not running the offense. Ben's not creating, you know, initiating the offense a lot. So in order for Ben to build his brand as a star player, that he needs to be on a team that's going to kind of put him back kind of in that situation. Yeah. If only we could combine Reddish's shooting with everything else that Ben does, I, th- I feel like we'd have, have a real player on our hands <laughs> right yeah um so, so i mean his the writer seasons me one interesting to monitor going forward uh because he's i mean for example 
uh, in the fourth game, he closed instead of Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich wasn't, wasn't making shots at all. Redditch is obviously the superior defender. Um, and Nate uh, pulled that trigger and kind of went uh, with Redditch closing there. So, um, you know, there it seems like that's an, uh, an option um, that if, you know, whether it's, you know, maybe Hunter in foul trouble, Hunter is coming off of a knee injury of his own, and maybe, you know, a situation where there's back-to-backs and he, he uh, can't handle the same workload, that Reddish is a, seems to have kind of a foot in the door to maybe work his way into closing lineups in some games, depending on how, you know, the game flow works and matchups and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, he, but he has a long way to go on offense for him to become what I think Hawks fans think he either is or almost is right now. And that's around decision-making, ball handling, doing basic stuff like running a pick and roll. He's a pretty far away off there in my estimate. On the Hunter side, you know, is he becoming one of the top wing defenders in the league? Um, potentially. Uh, I, I think we need more sample for what he's doing. But like in the New Orleans game, he took Brandon Ingram the whole game. Uh, Ingram had got to a hot start, um, and but Hunter handled him the whole rest of the game. Um, how, you know, how good is Brandon Ingram? He's really good offensive player. Um, and he, yeah, the Sixers, then, Sixers also have played New Orleans already this season, and oh, Ingram, right. Ingram had a tremendous game against them. So, right. we've seen, yeah, we've seen firsthand how good he's developed into. Yeah, and then Hunter is kind of the de facto point guard defender, though Trey obviously is not um, kind of. Uh, of the defensive profile, you normally just throw him at whatever you know point guard the other team has. Uh, so when they're facing teams that you know attack primarily through their point guard, Hunter you know switches and tends to move over to the point guard. Um, you know the Pelicans didn't really have that setup; they played through uh, Ingram mostly, um, and so that's that's what he took. So uh, you know if you you ask yourself like, could he make an all all, all defensive team this year? Um, I'm like, okay, you know, at this season, the short list is probably, what, 40 players or something. I don't know, guys that could make it is the list that's in there. And yeah. he's, on, he's in my mind, he's on that list. Um, but, you know, are the Hawks going to be top 12 in defensive rating? If they are, how much credit is Capella going to get for that? You know, he deserves a good, decent amount of credit for that offense where they land. Are they going to do better than top 12 and get into the top 10? It seems unlikely, but Nate McMillan teams tend to outperform defensive, you know, talent, you know, um, and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see. I think they'd have to win, you know, a lot of games for Hunter to start getting that much shine as an individual defender uh, in the league. But that's an, that's an award process. Is he becoming one of the top defenders uh, in the league? You know, I still think I think he's does a lot of the stuff that's pretty unique being six, uh, eight, having the wingspan that he has and being as strong as he is and being able to navigate screens as well as he does. He's awesome. You know, getting over ball screens, not having to ever go under a screen that he doesn't want to go under um, his ability to get his hand on the ball and disrupt. If a, if a ball handler is loose with the ball at all, he gets the hand in the air and kind of creates an opportunity to get uh, a turnover. And so all of what I would describe is all of the, the raw skills and all of the, the technique advancement that has to kind of come along for a wing defender to kind of start to become, you know, one of the best, I don't know, eight wing defenders in the league or whatever number we're going to talk about. That's all kind of there for him right now. Will he apply it consistently? Will he play consistently? Will the effort be there all the time? That's never been a real uh, question for him at all, but can he just handle the mental grind of what that role 
on a team that's trying to you know achieve something real can he keep himself at that level consistently all season long we won't know until we're you know further into the season but five games in he's been outstanding i would say he's playing at an all defense level um but he's a young guy can he sustain that for a whole season we won't know until he tells us whether he does or doesn't yeah um so we're gonna he's i, I would imagine he's going to be matched up with tobias um in saturday's game so that's it's going to be interesting to watch because Harris has gotten off to a good start this season. He's averaging almost 20 points a game. So if, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, the, it, maybe in math game, uh, they may try Collins there to start just because of the, who the Sixers start. I don't know where else you put Collins. Yeah. Um, you, but, I, I, I just thought maybe you could hide Collins on like Danny green. Cause all Danny green does is really run corner to corner. Like, and that's what they've been doing with trade typically is putting him uh, on the corner. So you, you may see Hunter on Seth. Um, just because of his ability to navigate screens. They, yeah. they run Seth off of Iverson cuts to start sets all the time. They run flare, a million flare screens a game for Seth. And just that screen navigation that he has that really no one else in the starting lineup has. Um, so it, it, I think you're right. He could start on Tobias. Um, it'd be interesting to see how everyone else matched up. I can't quite sort that out in my head right now. But they might start with, at least try to start with, Collins on Tobias, see how that goes, and use Hunter um, to chase uh, Seth over the million screens he gets. So, but we'll see. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. I, I forgot Atlanta has the has a more of a too big lineup than um, a lot sure. of other teams. Yeah, uh, in my mind, I'm always like, oh, DeAndre Hunter is the perfect perfect modern four, but you you got the, the Hawks just have a really long athletic starting group as a whole. So, right, uh, yeah, you you have the ability to put him on a a shooting guard like Seth and just have him like try to get, get into his, 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 uh, his area and just like putting one of those long limbs up that, that makes it a lot harder for Curry to get his shots off. So yeah, that could be, that could be a way they go for sure. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, Saturday's game. Um, what, what do you see as the, as the keys? Like for me, Ben Simmons not being around for, for this game. Like, I don't know what they're going to do with Trey. Uh, they could start Matisse and play some Maxi, maybe if they, they just wanted to try to go all defense. Um, otherwise, we saw in game one last year, uh, Danny Green is not the answer on Trey Young. Maybe you try Maxi, like, he's at least young and quick enough. Um, Doc was pessimistic about his defense at the beginning of last year. And then he was very vocal about how Tyrese had made strides to get better on that end of the floor. Um, is he ready for a Trey young matchup, uh, as much as anyone could be? I don't know. Um, that's, that really worries me going into this. Um, and, and just how healthy is Joel Embiid. Um, he's been dealing with the knee injury already this year. He looked really good against Detroit. Um, he looked, he looked as healthy as we've seen him this year, but again, that's Detroit, um, going against Clint Capella is a different animal. So, um, yeah, we'll see what, 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 what happens, but yeah. What are the, the key storylines you're looking for as, uh, this game approaches? Yeah. So for me, um, on the Hawks side, it's their defense, their defensive play Hunter aside, um, and aside from the normals, you know, good work Capella does has been pretty rough. Um, just their um, just simple things like tagging the roller, 
the low man helping on time and knowing he's the low man, just a lot of the different kind of basic NBA principles have been pretty bad uh, this year. Um, when people try to kind of press into like what's going on because their defense was, they were so on point in the playoffs last year, even though the results weren't always, you know, uh, good, uh, they were good enough, uh, you know, throughout the playoffs. But, you know, most people tend to think that, oh, the Hawks got up for in the playoffs and they really responded to that opportunity and that environment. And now they're going through the grind, even five games in the grind of a regular season. They're finding it hard to find the motivation to play at that level of commitment to defensive principles and things like that. And so I just think they're going to have a hard time really trying to do much with Embiid if they're not functioning as a team uh, in the way that they need to. So from the Hawks standpoint, I would, I would give their defensive performance across five games somewhere between a C minus and a D plus. It's been that bad. It's been really rough. Um, you know, they tend to put Hunter to, to, per our conversation a minute ago uh, uh, on the person who's going to create the most. When Hunter sits, it's Reddish. Reddish kind of comes in and jumps right into that role and they kind of job share uh, in that way. But all of their off-ball stuff has been rough. Um, and even uh, their point of attack defense has been so bad. Now, I know the Sixers don't have a ton to exploit that right now, especially without Ben. Um, but even Capella, you know, a guy as good as Capella in the middle, when opposing ball handlers are just getting a free run at the paint, he's not going to be able to do a ton with that. Few big, Even the best uh, big man defenders in the league need some containment at the point of attack to have a chance for them to kind of um, you know, get into position to help in the middle. So the Hawks defense has been quite bad. Their shot making has not showed up at all. Herder's not making shots really. Bogdanovich isn't. We talked about why Trey's not making a lot of his perimeter shots yet and stuff. So on the Hawks side, it's it's to me ninety percent about their defense. Are they going to play team defense? Are they going to execute the basic fundamentals and the basic assignments that you see? Um, on the Sixers side. Can, can they exploit that? If the Hawks are still <laughs> playing that way on defense, can they exploit that? Or you, you never know. In some games across the regular season, can Joel B just put the team on his back and score 38 to 45 points, you know, live at the free throw line in his own way uh, and things like that and just get enough shot making from either, you know, Seth doing what he does, uh, Furcon, you know, a good game from Maxi, whoever else that might come from. Danny Green hitting enough shots in the corner. And so, you know, that's what I, that's what I look to, you know, um, is the Hawks on defense. And then if they're still playing C minus D plus defense, what can the Sixers do to exploit that? And then, you know, is Embiid going to really, in the ways that he does sometimes, is he going to take this really personally because the Hawks, you know, you know, um, ended the Sixers seasons last season and he's been a person to kind of go to that type of personal motivation quite a bit in the past. So those are the kind of the, I don't know, the storylines and the, the things that um, the things that are developing on each side that I've seen so far, obviously watching the Hawks more closely than the Sixers, but those are things that I kind of, kind of see leading up to the game that are most interesting to me. Yeah, we could, we could definitely see Joel with the, the Michael Jordan last dance meme where, and then it became personal to me. Uh, I, I could definitely right. see, see that sure. yeah, if he has a big game against Atlanta. Um, but I, I have good news for any Hawks fans that might be listening due to you being on the pod is that if you're having defensive struggles, uh, the Sixers are a good matchup for you because <laughs> their, their offense has not been clicking at the start of the year. Um, right. all, all the same problems of shot creation and uh, creating from the perimeter and 
they're all still there. They're even magnified with, with Ben not being there and able to push the ball in transition and, and hit the, the three point shooters spotting up um, before the defense gets set. That's where a lot of the Sixers offense came from the past that hasn't been there. Um, So a lot of it has just been like, Hey, Joel, you need to be a superstar. And there's been a couple nights where he has been, and this isn't great that they needed him to be against Detroit. Like the, Pistons went on a 16-1 run in the fourth quarter, and they needed Joel to step up and hit a big shot at the end um, to even like secure that victory. So that wasn't great that Joel couldn't take a night off, uh, so to speak, and uh, to, for them just to put away the Pistons. Um, so it's either that or, or Seth getting hot, and that's really been and, and Tobias has been consistent. He gets his 18 to 20 every night. But um, aside from that, there's not a lot that has gone right offensively for the Sixers. Um, one, the one good development has been Joel's passing, which looks like it's, it's stepped up a lot from mm-hmm. even where it was last year when he had made improvements. Um, he's continued to make improvements. He's making really good skip passes to opposite corner now that yep. he, he, we hadn't seen in the past. And um he pulled out this off the dribble behind the back pass to Maxi in the corner last night against the Pistons. That was like, where, where did that come from? That was not in your bag before, sir. Um, yeah. so, so he he's made strides in that area, which is great to see. Um, we've yeah, had, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's been fun to watch him continue to grow and progress. And it's been it's interesting to me with Drummond coming in that the doc has incorporated a lot of what Stan used to run for Drummond back in Detroit, where the DHO was really at, towards the top of the key. So that's moved from kind of more of the elbow DHO more to the middle and using Joel's when Joel's operating the DHO in the middle, he can like, he has such a, a big DHO radius. He can take with one turn and one dribble, almost completely switch, you know, sides of the offensive floor. And that opens up so much more of his passing and his vision by having him centered and as opposed to being closer to the sideline and a little bit lower. And so I, you know, from that vantage point, I love what the Sixers have been doing with him to continue to progress him and to make uh, more use of his vision and passing. And, you know, knock on wood, I mean, I, I'd love nothing more in the NBA season for a rough respect to see Joel play 82 games and be healthy all year long because he's just such a dynamic player and so much uh, fun uh, to watch. Um, so, so, you know, will that allow them to get Capella away from the rim, for example, because of how much he's operating above the free throw line up there, that could be something that works well uh, for the Sixers. So there for Hawks fans that might, you know, see this across my uh, Twitter timeline and, and give it a listen. I hope you will. Um, but I, th- I think there's some, some things starting to potentially open up, even if the Sixers aren't, perfectly skilled across up and down the roster to really uh, attack but yeah it's it's gonna be the the Embiid um the, some of the new wrinkles uh, that they're kind of putting in place for Embiid to open that part of his game up I think is gonna reduce his wear and tear and just make him um give him an opportunity to contribute in more areas than just going down the post and banging for all the offensive production he's going to give his team so I think that's cool he still needs more help uh, and I think you, you and I are totally in alignment it seems on that um, but that's that's going to be a fascinating angle to watch as well as can they use that to get Capella out of the paint and open up some shots for cutters or whoever else might get down there or let open up some duck-ins for Tobias and things like that. So that's another thing I'm watching closely. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's definitely, Capella's going to have to come out to the three-point line because Joel has been a willing shooter 
right. not only last year, but this year as well. He's, I think he's 36% on the year. So he's, he's continued to, to progress in that area of his game. And um, it's, it's certainly opened up other things for him and his teammates. Um, you mentioned Drummond. He's, he's been a real chaos element, like in both good and bad ways. Um, but his passing ability has been a huge boon for the second unit and him throwing backdoor cuts to Furkan Korkmaz has been like a top three play for the second unit. Like they go to that frequently and his ability to operate, get the ball in the high post and, and hit cutters or, uh, you know, kind of operate as an offensive hub has been a, it's been something that's helped the second unit where they didn't have that last year with Dwight Howard, who was just pure like attack the glass get rebounds and putbacks and that's all he really brought to the table uh, offensively sure. whereas Drummond is a, for for his position a, a very good playmaker um all right so we, we discussed tomorrow's game um big picture where do you see I, you kind of touched on this earlier you still think the Hawks are it's a little too optimistic to consider them a true contender contender, but where do you see them stacking up in the East? Um, where in the hierarchy do you, do you feel they fall and, and what do you think is their, their ceiling this year? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, without adding another player, like we talked about earlier, I think Trey has to get to be like a top five player in the league, which he's not yet um, to take them himself by himself in this form to contender and in, in Maybe he gets there in two years. I don't, I don't know, but that's, I don't want to, compl- I don't want to talk of completely closed the door to them getting there because Trey could become that level of player um, as he continues to get towards his peak. Um, I've, I struggled as I was trying to work out my kind of predictions, if you will, um, in the East, because I really like what Kyle Lowry brings to Miami and a lot of the stuff he unlocks for Bam. Um, and I, I went back and forth, like, what I, do I think Miami's going to win more games than Atlanta? I'll end up with Atlanta winning more games only because I think they have the depth to handle the regular season and kind of maximize um, what you can do in the regular season. The Heat just don't have a ton of depth. So I think the, I think if you're talking about, like, seven-and-a-half-man rotation versus seven-and-a-half-man rotation, I put Miami over Atlanta. But because that's not how the regular season works, I, I finally ended up saying I think Atlanta wins the third most games. Uh, in the East, um, if the if the Sixers make uh, do make uh, a, a Ben trade that brings back offensive help for Joel, that's really functional. That would change everything, and I'd have to. I think we'd all have to recalibrate the way we look at it. But I have uh, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Atlanta, uh, Miami, Philly, uh, one through five right now, and that that doesn't suggest that I'm down on Miami or Philly. I just think Miami's not constructed for the regular season and Philly just have so much unanswered questions around, are they going to make a move or not? Uh, so that's, that's the pecking order I have right now. How will that go in the postseason? Don't ask me right now. You let me get to January at least and see if Atlanta's defensive play has gotten better. Did Philly make a move? Did, did Miami add depth eventually, even if it's in the buyout market, you know, that's going to all impact the way I see the postseason shaking up. But in the regular season, it's, uh, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Atlanta, Miami, Philly. It's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I feel like the Sixers are, you know, around the five or six spot in the East right now. They just the closer concerns are there. So I feel like they have enough t- pure talent and Joel Embiid is uh, as amazing enough of player to, to he's going to beat the Detroits and the Oklahoma cities of the world just by himself because he's that good. Um, but you go up against the better teams and I just don't think they have enough help for him. And 
yeah, I, I, especially in the postseason when teams can game plan and every, everything gets magnified, uh, like I could easily see them losing in the first round. Um, and I, I don't, I don't see any way they get out of the second round unless, as you said, the, a Ben trade materializes and, and they get useful pieces back um, because that Joel just, he can't, we, we've seen in the past, he can't do it by himself. And especially in the postseason when he has to exert such a tremendous effort on both ends, he just tires. And in the, in the fourth quarter of these games, he's, he's not even as effective as, as he as he normally is. So yeah, it's, it's been a it, kind of an eye opening beginning of the season for me as, as far as my ex- expectations for the team. Um, so this will maybe, maybe I'm wrong and, and they come out with a really good performance Saturday against Atlanta and that recalibrates things ever so slightly in my mind, but yeah, I don't think so. And I, I, I do feel like Atlanta with their depth and the fact that they're, there's, there's, they have just basically young guys across the board um, for the most part that, that benefits them in the regular season. Like they're not giving like Kyle Lowry a, a load management day. Like Miami has a few veterans that, that they're going to be getting those rest days and Sixers obviously do with Embiid and everything. So I don't feel like that's really an issue with Atlanta. So they're kind of more, more made for the 82 game grind than, than some of these other older teams. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I would put, I, I think I put that in third in the East. Um, all right, Glenn. So it's it's a cliche, but uh, what do you have as the the outcome for for Saturday's game between Atlanta and Philly? Um, you know, I, I if I had to put money on the game, which I never do, I would probably go with Philly just because I think that Atlanta's level to fit to play is going to play kind of into Joel's um, kind of opportunity there, and Joel does a lot there. I think it'll be a close game right down to the end. Um, but I don't, I don't have any reason to think their shot making is going to all of a sudden show Atlanta shot making is all of a sudden going to show up, which is a huge part of maximizing Trey is letting him hit open shooters and having to make shots. That's, that's not happening. The defensive execution is not there. And Joel Embiid is a legitimate MVP level player. And, you know, if you're not, um, you know, on it defensively, that level of player is just going to do a lot against you. And so uh, that's that's the way I would see it kind of kind of going in. Um, and then, uh, you know, to your point, I think Drummond, in a way that Dwight never did, is able to do enough of what Joel does when Joel goes to the bench, not the post scoring and not the shooting and things like that, but keeping the kind of the ball moving, you know, to, you know, uh, guys, whether you know, Furkan is kind of running the Seth stuff when Seth's off the bench or whatever that is and stuff, you know, there's just enough um, – uh, continuity there a little bit in ways that wasn't there last year that I think that the Hawks are going to have to really kind of come in and bring a really different defensive game or the Sixers get the win. And, and the way I see these teams coming in, I think I have to get the Sixers to that. All right. Well, I hope you are right. Personally, <laughs> I'm, I'm not as optimistic. I, I just feel like they don't have an answer for Trey. Like they're, they're going to throw Matisse on him for a good 20, 25 minutes, but uh, Matisse hasn't looked to take the next step on the offensive end, like right. some people might have hoped, and that was kind of key for him to like progress into being a thirty minute, twenty eight to thirty minute a game guy, um, which especially in the wake of Ben's absence was something the team really needs, um, and sure. he, he hasn't looked to to take that next step. So yeah, maybe you have Matisse for twenty to twenty five minutes on Trey, but the rest of the time, like I don't know what they're going to do. So I, I just feel like yeah. Trey's Trey's going to go off. Um, and I, I, I feel like 
Atlanta at least has bodies they can throw at Joel to to wear him down. And uh, I I don't feel like he's he's going to be able to do enough. Um, so we'll see. I, I hope you're right. Um, so Glenn, thank you very much for for joining me this week. Um, for everyone out there that wants to read more about the Hawks, you can find Glenn's work at Peachtree Hoops, and you can find him on Twitter at Willis underscore Glenn. And there's only one one N in Glenn and Willis is W-I-L-L-I-S. So um, Glenn, I, I appreciate you joining me and um, I hope you're right about the the outcome of Saturday night's game. Yeah, I think it'd be, I think it'd be a good game to go down the final minutes. So hopefully it's just a game we can all enjoy watching. Uh, but I greatly appreciate you having me, Sean, enjoy the conversation. And uh, like I said, appreciate it. All right, take care. And uh, for all the listeners out there, I will be back with you next week. Have a good week.